Okay, James, I'm going to say three things. Can you tell me the four? Brand new bike, car roof rack, low bridge warning sign. Pedalshaw Bike Insurance. That's right, because bike insurance specialist Pedalshaw has you covered for virtually anything. From bike theft and personal liability, to crashing in a sporty for race, and even accidental damage too. Pedalshaw will even cover those, oh no, what have I done, roof rack moments. Pedalshaw will insure any bike up to £15,000 against dings, dents, cracks and anything else that might happen to it in its lifetime. And it will even do the same for your bike accessories. And best of all, Pedalshaw aims to pay out faster than any other bike insurer. Right now, Pedalshaw is offering all new customers a 10% discount on coverage, plus a sold secure, gold-rated, hip-lock, D-lock worth £69.99 for any bike covered worth more than 1500 quid. So just head over to www.pedalshaw.com to get you and your bike covered today. Hello and welcome to episode six of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I am your host, Joe Robinson, and I am joined by the power of the internet by my co-host, James Spender. Hey up, Joe. How's things? They're good. They're good. Lots have been happening in the world of cycling since we last spoke. So we can all rejoice because bike racing is just around the corner. It returns in full swing on Saturday the 1st of August with the women's and men's Strada Bianca, first World Tour race since the break taken in March because of, you know, COVID-19. There's been a virtual Tour de France happening, which I have virtually nothing to say about because I haven't watched it, and I don't think you have either. (laughs) No. Except from uh, Astana did pull out because they didn't have enough Wi-Fi on a mountain. That's the most exciting thing to happen. Uh, Of course, Chris Froome has left. Team Ineos, he's left the Empire to join Israel's startup nation from 2021. Uh, Word on the grapevine, he's not done that because of Tour de France leadership. It's because he wants to ride disc brakes next year. (laughs) Clever, clever boy, clever boy. Um, But most importantly, James, since we last spoke, the most important thing to have happened was something that's probably the worst thing to before a cyclist ever, which is worse than speed wobble and aggressive drivers combined. While riding your bike, you had a wasp fly into your mouth. Yeah, um, that's right. And I'd just like to correct you there, Joe. It was a bee, which I think okay. I think uh, all uh, insectorians will agree it's probably got a worse sting. But I was out but riding. But the, the least aggressive of the two. The least aggressive, yeah. Um, and I myself am not an aggressive person, and I wish the bee no harm. And I really hope it survived, because bees don't always die uh, when they sting you. It's only, I think, if they lose their little barb. But I was cycling yeah. around the Olympic mountain bike track, which is absolutely amazing at Lee Valley Park. I don't know why I've not been down there before. Yeah. So that's where they had the um, Olympic mountain bike race. And it is perfect for the bike I'm testing at the moment, which is a Pinarello Gravel, spelled G-R-E-V-I-L. Anyway, on that track, riding through some lovely wildflowers, and I could just suddenly just feel this thing on my lip, and I could feel, I could literally feel its little legs going on my lip 
was traveling oh. at some serious speed going over this, this around this little berm. I was like, <laughs> and just didn't get out in time. It just felt like an electric shock going through my lip. And then, of course, it swelled up. And then the rest of my face swelled up. And then I got home and I didn't have any antihistamine. But I did have some cream. So I tried ingesting some of the cream, which probably didn't help. And eventually yeah. I had to call on a neighbor. Peggy, if you're listening, you're probably not. But thank you so much. She works with NHS. <laughs> so big her up anyway. And she came down with some antihistamines. And my face swelling uh, eventually did go down. But I was a bit like Leslie Ash for a while. I don't know if you remember when she got her rather ill-fated Botox. Right, yeah. Uh, there is actually a photo that you showed us, James, that we may even put out um, on Instagram or, or Twitter <laughs> to, show the, to show the listeners because it was quite the, quite the photo. Um, you were very swollen. And that was the day after. The evening was yeah. just mad. I've, it's, it was something that I really hope doesn't happen again. I haven't been stung by anything since I was a kid. Uh, and that was a real, yeah, it was just, a, it was a horrible incident. And the worst things happened on the bike. And I I don't know how, maybe I just credit the Binarello really for keeping me upright because I certainly wasn't steering it very well at that point. I had a kind of hand down my throat trying not to get stung by this whole bee thing. So, so yeah, so that's what happened to me. That well, was very nice. Well, James, I'm happy that, nothing befell of you too badly that you didn't fall off and that you didn't go into anaphylactic shock and that you're all good now uh let's move on to today's episode where we're going to be talking to the world's best domestique that's right we've got tim de clerk of de Kernick quick stop on the show and he's going to be talking to us about sacrificing yourself in their service for others how sprinters are now racing one another in the mountains to take advantage of one another and how he arranges for his wife tracy to come and give him a lift halfway through Paruru Bay every year so he doesn't have to ride to the finish. Following that, James and I are going to discuss the history of Pinarello Bikes, from its humble beginnings of the Malionera at the Giro d'Italia to 10 Grand Tour victories in eight years. But first, things we like and things we don't like. Right, so Joe... This week, this last fortnight, what have you been loving? Tell me something that you like. Right, so I was having a little think about this, James, and I was, you know, falling, falling a bit short, couldn't think of something, uh, but then bang, in my email inbox this morning, I've had a press release from Continental, the uh, German tyre yeah. giants, because and they have released a brand new GP5000 tyre for the Tour de France, which is, yep. Yeah, you may think, okay, what's exciting about that? It's their first ever tan wall road tire, James. Whoa, now you're talking yep. my language. I love it. Now we're tire. talking. It's all the usual jazz of the GP5000, you know, veteran breaker technology, black chili compounds, that solid all-rounder that we all know and love. But it's been given tan wall treatment, the fashionistas amongst us. Uh, and I can certainly say that I want to get my hand on a set because... The GP5000s are a great all-rounder tyre that I've used on many, many occasions on many, many bikes. But giving them that tan wall finish is just the icing on the cake for me, James. Well, I'm, glad, I'm so pleased that that press release um, made your day. I did really well. cheered my Monday up. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, there's always that. It is a Monday. Even a Monday working from home, you need cheering up. So I did see it as well. And it, I've got to say, it did excite me. I do love a tan wall tyre. And mm. I would, I'd love to say I completely understand people that don't love them, but I don't understand people that don't love Tamil tyres. What's not to like? <laughs> they look 
they just look super pro um, and I know that's desperately shallow but they do um, but I was a bit disappointed to see that they are only going to be available in 25 mil mm. initially they'll probably do what Schwalbe and other people have done previously and start with the 25 and then slowly roll out the 28s they try and get out the most popular product first and then they follow up and also not tubeless not at the moment anyway so could have done better i'd say continental satisfactory performance three and a half stars out of five so far would be my review having never seen them um right but, okay yeah. fair enough fair enough I, I mean I, I believe I, I i reckon you're right i think that these 25 mil clinchers will sell like hotcakes and they'll have no choice but to bring them out in in different widths and in tubeless because the gp5000 obviously is now available in tubeless as they introduced that in 2018 after a long long period of saying no to road tubeless they said no they said we'll never do tubeless exactly so i think that i think you're right james i think there'll probably be more whips and they'll probably be become beyond a special edition tire and just be part of their regular stock um as for something i don't like mm-hmm. as you've just told me that it only popped into my head earlier today after I found out about what had happened with you and the Wasp. And it is that, at the moment, I'm finding, where I'm riding at least, uh, hedges are not being cut back as much, which means that there are plenty of stinging nettles finding themselves hanging onto uh, country lanes. Uh, And I have found myself riding past a few, brushing them and and getting little stings on my hands. Oh, oh dear. Well, Not enjoyable, but that's it. You know, it's only a little moan. Um, so, I, I want mean, to hear yeah. about, and I've I have no sympathy for you. I got stung in the face by a bee. You're just talking about nettles. Exactly. I could just get a dock leaf, and I'd be all fine. Yeah. James, tell me something that you're liking at the moment. Um, without turning this whole podcast into a massive advert for Pinarello, which it isn't, honestly, um, it is the Pinarello Greville. Like it's the Pinarello Greville uh, Plus, which is effectively. Uh, it's a gravel bike and it's like a dogma, but with 650B tyres or 650B wheels and tyres. So it's got chunky ass 47mm Vittoria tyres on it. Drop bar bike. The thing that made my day riding it the other day was this little kid and his dad were on the mountain bike track as well. And the kid went, yeah. look at that guy, daddy. It's like a mountain bike, but it's also a road bike. And for some reason, it, it felt like I was some kind of special person for having this thing because this kid was so impressed. But I've been really impressed at just how well it rides. It's super right. fast. It's super stiff. I've been so they haven't they haven't just chucked a set of gravel wheels and tires onto a dogma. They probably have. <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> It, the Dogma is already a good bike, to my mind. Divisive, we'll come to that later on, yes. But it's a good bike. So to do that is not the worst thing in the world. They've obviously changed the geometry to suit it too, but you'll recognise a very familiar silhouette. And if there's a downside, something I haven't been liking so much, it's in the back of my mind knowing it is a £7,000 bike, which does just oh. seem kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say over the top, but it's SRAM Force. So SRAM Force one by but not that's not the top of the SRAM tree and it's mechanical and you know it's got some nice parts on it but it's still seven grand and I have already binned it a couple of times and scratched one of the levers so sorry but it does beg to be ridden like that so in that you know just as a bike it is a really really good bike and I'm really enjoying it so it's been yeah been a good week riding rediscovering some um, mountain bike routes
So, James, domestics, water carriers, call them what you will, they're the invisible men and women of the peloton. They are those who do the dirtiest work for the very least recognition or praise. But we here at Cyclist Magazine Podcast want to shine a light on these men and women and give them their plaudits that they deserve, while also finding out what it takes to be the world's best at being a helper for others. So, James, recently I got on a Zoom call with the world's best domestic as voted for recently by the public and his fellow pros, not just his teammates, that's Tim de Klerk of de Kernick Quickstep. Now, you'll know Tim de Klerk as the fairly lanky, fair-haired Flandrian man who is usually found trucking along at the front of a race on any given day in the services of the likes of Julian Alaphilippe, Valerie Jacobson, and, and previously people like Philip Gilbert and Nicky Terpstra. And he gave me some excellent insight into what it's like controlling monuments and grand tours how he has to survive at the end of the day to get to the end of a stage and also about how he has his wife help him get to the end of Paru Bay because he can't ride there himself now James you want to hear that interview I'd love to yeah please okay let's play it now hi Tim uh hello how you, you doing yeah, he he, nice and clearly. Okay, that's great. Good. How's how are things? You've been out training this morning. Oh uh, yeah, it was uh, just an uh, easy recovery day because uh, I leave for training camp uh, this afternoon. Just a small one, the last one uh, with my girlfriend without uh, without the baby that's coming up. So yeah, and um, are you? What is it? Warm in Belgium? It's really hot over in. I'm in the. Yeah, 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 it's it's really hot. Yeah, they said, I, I read today that it's the the strongest sun that they've ever had in the UK. So, like, oh, yeah? Yeah, so it's like the strongest, it's not the warmest day, but it's the, basically, you're going to get burnt if you go outside. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, 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 it's, it's, it's uh, over across whole Europe, eh, for yeah. the moment. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. I, I wouldn't, I mean, you, you've lucked out maybe not racing in it because it's so warm. It'd be horrible to yeah, race in it. So, um, yeah, but, did, but, you also get used to, and for sure, in the in the in the tour in the southern parts of France, it's yeah. it's a lot more hot now. It's thirty degrees here, but there it uh, can be quite a bit more. How's your How's your lockdown been? How How? Because um, you're in Belgium at the moment, so you've always had the opportunity to go out and ride, haven't you? Yeah, that was uh, something that we're uh, very pleased of uh, from the Belgian government. Uh, we were only in the beginning, we were only allowed to ride alone or with with uh, one guy that has to be the same uh, but now then they when they noticed that the virus was not uh, the motor of the virus to, to spread it was not uh, really in, in the outside then we were uh, allowed to ride with with more I think from three or four weeks ago but yeah we were really happy that we could still ride uh, our yeah. bikes outside and, and you've been busy I, I believe you're, you're about to become a father so you've been busy building a, a nursery I hear yeah, you can see it. <laughs> I yeah. don't know if you can see it. Uh, it's going to be podcast, so people won't see it. But yeah, there, there are uh, some things I, that I have built. And also, I painted, painted the inside of the house and uh, also had a little, little bit of work because I'm, I'm still uh, studying. So uh, for me, it was not a boring period. Yeah, you, you made the most then of the time off the bike. Unlike some, some others, you'd have you've found time to sort of build the cop there that I can see, et cetera. So, yeah. 
Good Indeed, use of time. Uh, it was it was not it was not all useful time. I I also wasted a little bit of it uh, playing some old games that I used to love. Yeah, I, he- I hear you've been playing with Yves Lampert. Is it Age of Empires too? Yes, indeed. indeed. So what, what, yeah, what, in, what in what's Age of Empires? How's that work? What's that game involved? Uh, well, it's a strategy game. It's uh, I think it's it's more than twenty years old, but because of the gameplay is so good, they they keep making new versions of it. And yeah, I think we 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 both like uh, the strategy, and we are a little bit nerds sometimes. That yeah, that we we like the competitiveness of this also online. So yeah. Who, who's better? Nice to, what? Who's better, you or Eves? Uh, it's it's always difficult bragging about yourself, but yeah, I think <laughs> no, no. But uh, he he has improved a lot. So, yeah. Oh, good. And I also hear that you play a little bit of Pro Cycling Manager every now and then. Yeah, sometimes with with another friend of mine. I I never play it alone, but in multiplayer, I uh, I like it to play with a with an old friend. That's that's also lovely. Do you ever play as yourself? Uh, uh, it, I, like in in the in the real world, you can you cannot win uh, with <laughs> my stats. So yeah, I, I sometimes I would play it, but yeah, I'm, I'm more like to play with the big stars to to have a chance of winning a race. Yeah, amazing. So um, I've got you on today because we want to talk about basically being a domestique in the world tour. Um, you are regarded as one of the world's best domestics, not only by your teammates, but your rivals. And you were even recently voted by the fans as the best domestic in the, in the World Tour peloton. Um, and you're so much so that you've earned yourself a bit of a cult following, uh, which is rare for a, a domestic to have so many fans, I guess. Yeah. So I think you're one of the best people to ask the question, what makes a great domestic? Um, there are two parts uh, for sure you, you need to have the physiology to do it you have to be able to uh, maintain uh, uh, um, yeah, maintain good watts at, at the, for a long time of a sub-maximal level without uh, without ha- having too much of a drop-off so that's the physiological part uh, but also mentally you have to be ready for this because a lot of guys would maybe be able to do it, but prefer to ride for themselves, which is of course not a shame. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm. Uh, I was five years with Tosport Flandern, and there I noticed that I could be there sometimes in the final if 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 the if the race suited me well. If it was a long and and a hard race, but in the end, I liked the explosivity to to finish it off. And then for me, it was nicer to to. To play myself in the in this uh, in this role, uh, which suits me better, I think. And and what's what what are we talking about? What's the sort of power that you normally have to push out to to ride at the front? Yeah, it's it, it depends, of course. If you yeah, you have also to take a little bit of reserve for the final, so it's it's hard to uh, pin out one number. But for sure, your aerobic power has to be quite high. Mm. And, and could you have you ever tried to work out how many kilometers you've done on the front of races since being at the Kernick? Because it seems like every time you turn on the television, it'll be you and Ilio controlling the race. Yeah, well, I, I don't uh, start with this because it would be sometimes hard uh, mentally if you if you have to already start riding uh, after 15k in a race and you know it's still 200k to go or more. 
<laughs> then uh, it's sometimes hard for uh, for the head, but yeah, it's it's my job and I love what I do, and it also helps that sometimes uh, we on our team we can uh, we can finish it off. So that's always uh, that's always nice experience. Yeah, I mean you get plenty of victories, so your work's often rewarded, isn't it? So yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's always great. But yeah, I. I I do it for for uh, because I love it and and it helps of course to that we win sometimes but for sure for me it's it's the most important that they that they uh, are happy with what I do and they, they thank me a lot for this so this means that this is a great motivation and you've you've earned yourself a nickname El Tractor do, do yes. you mind explaining what how you got that nickname well it's already in my first uh, race with the team. Uh, I think some Argentinian commentator, uh, he started talking about me because I spent the whole race there either in the front or, or getting dropped after the, the work that I did. And then um, he started speaking about El Tractor and the PR manager of the team, he noticed that. And I, he said, are you happy with this nickname? And I said, yeah, I, I like it. I, uh, I know I'm not uh, El Ferrari, but uh, I think it's a nickname that suits me well. Oh, good. And uh, I mean, I'm, in, I'm intrigued to know what's the differences between controlling, say, a Grand Tour stage and a monument. So you, you've done both and you've done both to help teammates win. But I guess that you have to do different things. Mainly, yeah. 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 Uh, I'd say from a Grand Tour perspective, firstly, you, you have to reach the finish, which is the, yeah. the biggest thing. Of course, uh, in a Grand Tour, it's always uh, important also to find allies in the bunch because in the Grand Tours, uh, never anymore in, in professional cycling, there are, there are no bad riders anymore. Everybody works for the trainer, works for the power meter. Everybody has a, has a good level. So even if you have to control alone four guys, it's, it's, yeah, it's really hard. You can maybe do it for one day, but it's, it's nearly impossible. And, and in the end... Uh, they're also coming other days, so you need to find allies. And then um, it's important that you, you, you try to find the, the right tactic, uh, try to know how fast you're going and, and make a calculation of, of what you think the, the, the front group has still left in, in the pocket. It's only you that can know it because in the, in the car, they cannot know um, how much what you are producing at the moment and, and what's the parkour. And, and so, so then you have to make a calculation and try to uh, keep them keep them reasonably close, and then leave something uh, for the final that you, that you can uh, maybe catch them or uh, try to try to stay in the, in the front for as long as possible. So you almost have to be a mathematician and a, a cyclist at times. <laughs> yeah, of course, it's it's not the the most difficult math, but yeah, maybe you can stay it like this. Yes. So have you ever have you ever been worried that you'd never reach the end of a of a stage of a Grand Tour because of how much work you've done? Um, I know. I'm not, one thing that that I can do quite well is is recover after a, such a stage. But but in the end, yeah, I I, I had it in the, Tour de France 2018. I, I became sick in the in the last week. Maybe it was because of all the work that that I did before. I still felt good, but maybe I, I uh, got a li little bit too much in my reserves and then, then that's what makes the body sick. But uh, before that, I, I, I didn't really have a, a day that I, that I think I, I would make it to the finish. But mm. yeah, sometimes you think, yeah, for sure I need help because otherwise we will not be able to, to catch the breakaway. 
And, and that day that you you fell ill and you were worried about getting to the end, wasn't that a, a day in the mountains, I believe, isn't it? Yeah, it was. I think was it, it was the day where they raced for, for the longest mountain in, in the whole tour. I think it was 90 or almost 100 kilometers till the breakaway went. So, and me without eating uh, for 24 hours, it was uh, really impossible to make it to the finish line there. And it was up because it was up the Quad Fer and the Alpe d'Huez, so there's some some big climbs to to race up, wasn't it? Oh no no no, it was, was not that? that. It was not that that day. I uh, I survived. It was I, uh, then I was still uh, okay. It was I, I became sick on the rest day and it was uh, the first stage after after the rest day. And um, so you've mentioned before, like that you're not a bad climber. For you're quite a big guy in the peloton, but you you can climb pretty well. Um, but I'm interested, you've had to protect sprinters at Grand Tours. Fabio Jakobsen at the Vuelta last year and Fernando in 2018 at the Tour. Um, did the Gruppetto still climb together and help each other or has it become a bit more competitive between the sprinters? Yeah, um, yeah I think it's, it's for sure in the beginning of a big tour, it's, it's uh, always a lot more competitive. Uh, I'm only riding now for, for 10 years in the, in the pro peloton, but you can see it's changing a little bit. Uh, if, yeah, if I was a sprinter and I could climb a little bit better than the other one, I would also try to hang on as long as possible also to give, uh, to have a little bit of a mental advantage. And yeah, I, th I think it's also a little bit of a, yeah, that it's logical, but, but also, yeah, if if you are dropped too early, uh, for sure. With with the in 2018, where they changed the time limits in the tour, it was also a matter of just really going full, full, full gas just to make it in time. And when you have more time, you can you can easily drop uh, and go go a little bit easier easier pace. But it all also depends on the on the parkour. If it's just quite flat, and then. Uh, one really hard climb in the end, yeah, then everybody's going to drop uh, at the bottom and just go easy because it's, it's uh, no fear of, of being uh, out of time. And I guess on the big mountain days, it's as much going as full gas down the climbs as it is up them. And the Gruppetto are often, the Gruppetto are often known for descending much faster than the, the main guys. Um, yeah. And I heard recently from Kern de Court, who's another domestic like yourself, that it's not so much the max speed, but the way you take corners, that's the crazy thing. Yeah, I, uh, one time in the Tour of 2018, I stayed with Fernando and uh, with Richesi and uphill, I'm not saying it was, was easy, but yeah, I, I, had, I was not on my maximum, but I can assure you to follow them in the descents, I was really on my maximum. <laughs> and what sort, of, what sort of speeds can you hit? I, I really have no no time to check it, but it's it's not really the the, the speeds that make. But like in the course, it's it's the corners going just that one k faster than you would normally do, and that really makes it uh, on the limit. Oh. And um, going back to sort of you got the grand tours that you help control, but you're also very effective at being a domestic at, Mon at the Spring Classics, and anyone yeah. who's Spring Classics for the last couple of years would have probably seen you and uh, your teammate Ilya Kaiser on the front and you yeah. do it to great effect because you've helped Philippe Gilbert win Paris-Roubaix, Julian Alaphilippe win Sam Remo and Nicky Turkshire at the Tour of Flanders. Um, yeah. But I always remember, was, I think it was the 2018 Flanders that Turkshire won 
you and Ilio on the front at the beginning beginning of the race, um, yeah. shouting at riders to not join the breakaway because yeah. you were trying to control who was and who wasn't in the day's yeah. break. How do you decide who's who can be in a break for the day? Yeah, that was always uh, that was a, a really specific year because um, the guys that saw the spring classics before, like Idri, we quite dominated with with the team a little bit, and then uh, knowing that Nikki was so good, uh, then more than ever, all the other teams um, looked at us. So yeah, we are only also only with two domestics. Some teams have have a lot more. So we knew we had to be really economic with our with our forces, and if it's a breakaway that of ten or fifteen guys that go, we we cannot control it alone. So it had to be um, with not too many riders. And and yeah, we we of course it's it's a, our job of uh, of of the domestics to know as much as riders as possible and to know that uh, that's best not to have too many strong guys in in that break. So it's. I always deciding really at the moment because you cannot do it from the car because the moment they give the numbers they already 20 30 seconds gone mm. so really we have to react really in in the moment and it's uh, it was nice to mm. to do it with with Ilio he has a, a lot of experience in this and i think he gave already quite a bit of that to me so i'm i'm really happy to have uh, learned a lot from him and i guess it must be quite sort of hard for you because as you said, that you only had two domestiques because quite often you entered the monuments with three or four guys who are technically leading the team. Unlike mm -hmm. some of your rivals, say Bora Hansgrower, who will have just Peter Sagan to look after. Yeah. Indeed, must, yeah. It must be harder for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 harder, but it's also something that, that motivates us and also motivates the rest of the team because they see uh, two guys giving really all 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 they have for them so that I think it's all also triggers them to to really go beyond the limit and and also the other guys that that come just uh, after us in, in the hierarchy also to to give uh, everything they have or, or to put the, the team in a great position and do you ever do you ever get nervous before one of these big races yeah of course I'm always nervous yeah this is I, th I think it's something that's if you are in our team, you you can really feel the tension building up towards those classics. We are a classic team, and everybody, uh, when it comes closer and closer, you, you start start to to feel the build up of nervosity coming. Uh, and and yeah, it's it's as long as it's not too much. I think it's something that that motivates you. Of course, I I can say I'm 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 always nervous before uh, the start of one of of the monuments because. Yeah, you never know how how the race is gonna gonna develop, and you can only try to be yourself in 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 the best possible shape. But there are a lot of external factors that you cannot control, and sometimes uh, that gives a little bit of stress. But it's also uh, the nice nice part about cycling. Do you try and hide the nerves, or or do you, can you see people are nervous, or does everyone try and act composed and? hide it yeah you can see it in in in, uh, in in some little things but i think uh most of us also uh, perform better when it when it's when you have that little bit of nervosity when it when it's not making when it's not uh, making a fear of failure or something like this then it's and i think i think it's it's still okay 
And what, in your opinion, what's the what's the hardest race to control as a domestic? Would you say? Um, I think what is a lot of time uh, underestimated. I think is Paris Roubaix. <laughs> this is really hard to control because it's always long, uh, straight, big roads in the beginning. Uh, so if it's a small road, it's with only four or five guys being able to ride next to each other. It's difficult, more difficult for the breakaway to, to be with, with a lot of guys. And there, uh, the other teams, even of the favorites, they don't really always help to, to control, but more of them, uh, they, they control us uh, more than, than they control the breakaway. So always with two, three guys, we have to jump and jump and jump. And you don't really see this on on, uh, on TV, but it's every time us we, we need to to restart, and then they just just follow us. And it's often a lot of time uh, before the breakaway goes. Then, so I can assure you, a lot of the energy has already been drained from the body at the moment they they are gone. Before you've even hit the cobbles. Yes, yes, yes. That's why I, I me personally, I with this team, I I, I think it's my favorite race by Roubaix. I think it's the one that suits me best. But still, I was never able to to make it to the finish line. Do you, so? Do you ever do you ever try and get to the end of a, a monument for like pride? Because obviously, once your job's done at a, a one day race, you don't need to get to the finish. But do you no, do it for yourself? Um, yeah, of, of course. I. I I finished all of them when I when I was with with Top Sport, um, and sometimes like if 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 I still have a little bit of energy, like in Tour of Flanders, I I try to finish, also for the for the training for the for the next week by Roubaix, but in in Roubaix I always get like I said it's it's even sometimes a little bit more hard to to control, and if you are, I'm always empty at. at the boss van Wallers, and then uh, it, it's at that moment you, you you really gave everything you had. You, you have that one goal uh, of doing as much as possible for the team, and the moment when it's over, it's totally over. And when you when you think about all the sectors you still have to do with a completely empty body, and the moment you you drop, then it's like really the moment you you feel how many energy you already spent, and then it's. The moment you drop, it's it's completely over. It's like you can only ride 25 k an hour anymore, <laughs> and it's still a, a long way to go to Roubaix. And it must be hard at Roubaix because it's a straight line, basically. So you can't even take a shortcut back. Whereas at Flanders, at least you can get to the bottom of the Quermont and just go back to Udenard on the main road. That's, that's true. That's why I, uh, with with my my girlfriend, we have an agreement that she's always on a on the same spot, the the long sector of. Uh, one Dini, I think 3.7k uh, that comes 10k after uh, Wallers and <laughs> when, it, when I'm empty I, I get uh, I, I go in the car with her oh, that's, a, but, that's perfect yeah <laughs> but last year she, she did make it so I, I had to take the car of a soigneur of another team but yeah I still uh, still made it to Roubaix so that was nice not bad that's good and um, to, to finish up Tim I just want to, when you're, when you know that you've got to control a race for the day um, and, yeah. and you're letting the breakaway go, is there one rider in particular that you always dread if they try and get in the, in the breakaway? Of course, yeah, I think everybody knows the, the one guy that's, that's really the specialist of this. It's uh, Thomas de Hent. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard for him, but 
uh, when you see he's in the breakaway, you know that it has already been a really hard uh, parkour because everybody who wants to control a breakaway knows Thomas the hand and knows his intentions. So if he if he still is able to escape, you know it's it's had been uh, already really really hard, and that uh, yeah, that's gonna be an, an even more hard day to to control him. What, why is he so hard to why is he so hard to chase compared to everyone? Is he just is he smart at riding or is he just so strong? Uh, like I think he's uh, like a little bit what what I said. I'm I'm uh, good at uh, riding a long time at the sub maximal level, but I think he's even better in this than uh, than me. And he also has that explosiveness in in the start. So he's just one guy that that doesn't get tired, and and even after five hours he can. He can still remain uh, pushing almost the same watts as he did in the beginning, so that's what makes him uh, such a spectacular rider. We also have in in our team one guy that's that's really strong at this is uh, Remy Cavagna. Yeah, but uh, yeah, he's, I think he's a little bit the same. Maybe not on the same tactical level, but from engine, he's also a, a strange guy. He's he's a hard guy to uh, the Vuelta. He was a hard guy to catch and. Yes, indeed. But I'm happy he's with uh, on my team. That gives you a rest for the day if he's out front. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so Tim, thanks for joining us on the on the episode today. I'll let you go as um, you've probably got some more uh, baby preparation to do before yep. you go off in your team camp. Um, okay. So awesome, and um, enjoy the enjoy the rest of the season when it restarts, and good luck. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Cheers. See you Ciao. later. See you. Bye bye. So James, Tim DeClerc, lovely bloke. Really lovely guy. Very, very chatty. Um, yeah. Often think this about people from Belgium. Fantastic English. Yeah. Absolutely. Excellent yeah. English. Great to hear that he was keeping himself occupied during lockdown, not only by playing Age of Empires 2, which I think is fantastic, uh, but also by building that cot for his now daughter, because him and his wife, Tim and his wife Tracy, have since become parents to their daughter Mary Lou. So we must wish them congratulations. Congratulations, Chateau, Tim. Congratulations. On becoming, becoming parents for the first time. Excellent. Happy days. Mm. Uh, I was uh, amused by the idea that one of the hardest things about being a domestic is actually when gravity is on your side and he was ascending because it's so dangerous. And he, I mm. bet he's gone pretty fast. But it did make me think, tell me, Joe, how fast have you gone on a bike down a hill? So I haven't gone that fast, James. I don't know if it's because I'm a little bit of a scaredy cat or because I haven't been on the, the sufficient descents to go that fast, but it was 88 kilometers an hour descending the Glandon, Ooh. the cold de Glandon in the Alps. Speedy, speedy. Um, I, 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 I'm guessing you've been faster. Uh, yeah, it's more, I was humble bragging, that's why I asked you the question. Um, uh, I clocked 108 on a, press on a very straight road in Austria on the Otztaler Rad Marathon, and... That really seemed insanely fast. But then if you read like some of the numbers that say like Vincenzo Nibali, I mean, obviously he is a professional, but he'll be touching, he'll be nudging like high teens of 118, possibly even 120. That is seriously fast on the bike. And he's also, it's not like he's taking any prisoners in the corners either. So no. Well, if you, if you get, if you, if dear listener, if you have issue 103 of Cyclist Magazine, which is in all good stores now, well, you're a subscriber, you'll be able to read my Q&A with fellow domestique of Tim DeClerc, Kern de Court, who rides for the Trek Segafredo team. And he told me 
that he hit 117 kilometers an hour for the Tour of California one. But he said that it's all about the speed of the corners and how fast. They just go extra fast in the corners and they take risks that no other rider would normally take at the front of the race. So you must you must sort of applaud them for their lunacy, but also their bravery. We've just launched Cycling Electric. And if you're thinking about getting an e-bike, then this is your ultimate guide to buying one. It covers everything you need to know, including over 50 reviews across all different types of e-bikes. We've got everything from commuters and folders to gravel and cargo covered. Now you can buy the magazine from WH Smith Sainsbury's or any good independent retailer or you can just go to shop.cyclist.co.uk to order yourself a copy too. And even better, to celebrate the launch of Cycling Electric, we've partnered with Freewheel to offer one lucky person the chance to win a Ridgeback Advance e-bike worth three and a half grand. All you need to do to enter is head to cyclist.co.uk forward slash e hyphen bikes hyphen competition and answer the following question. What e-bike drive system does the Ridgeback Advance use? Is it A, the Shimano Steps E5000? Is it B, the Shimano Steps E6000? Or is it C, the Shimano Steps E6100? Good luck. So James, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been you've spent more time with Pinarello since the turn of the year than your own family. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't really thought about it like that but yeah I think I've probably spoken to Pinarello from seeing Fausto more than I've seen my own dad so your last trip before lockdown was a trip to the Pinarello factory in Treviso am I right yeah that's correct yeah in northern Italy where and you were guided by the man himself Fausto mm-hmm. to have a look at their historical bikes um, and then you also worked on a profile of Fausto for issue 103 of the magazine, which is out now. Yep. Um, and I have to applaud you on that because it was hugely insightful and really interesting. Oh, cheers, I really mate. enjoyed reading it. No, no, you you, you deserve such praise. Um, <laughs> and since such time of you going over to Treviso, you've ridden and reviewed the Pinarello Dogma F12. Yeah. And as you mentioned earlier in the show, you're also on their Greville Gravel bike currently. Yeah, the Greville Gravel. So it feels like you are the man to talk to about Pinarello at the moment. You are the authority on the subject. Yeah, I would I would think so. I'm sort of uh, Professor Robert Winston level when it comes Professor to... Professor James Pinarello. Yeah, Sir John Pinarello, yeah. the inventor of Pinarello bikes is me. I'd probably stand to inherit the company, I hope anyway, from Fausto, because the company is doing really rather well. It's an odd one, isn't it? We discussed this before, how it's a kind of company that pretty much only sells one bike. It just mm. that's that's its bread and butter is the dogma. How many brands can say that that their top level bike sells most of makes most of their profits? The rally with their chopper. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. Um, but so I mean, the best place to start, I guess, with Pinarello is at the beginning because yeah. the beginning is always the best place to start. So my in my mind, James, I want to believe that the Pinarello Pinarello is a brand that doesn't have that heritage of, of a competitor like Bianchi or Villiers, right? Okay. So for me, Pinarello started in the 1990s with Miguel Indurain and the Espada Hour record bike. It was then taken up by Jan Ulrich at the end of that decade mm-hmm. when he was riding for Team Telecom. And then we then get thrust into the modern day with Sky and Ineos and their all-conquering Grand Tour performances of Wiggins through Bernal and Thomas on the Dogma. But 
I'm going to guess that's not the case, right? You would be correct. And it, while it's not harking back to 1885 when Bianchi was started, it's pretty old. It was started 1952 by Fausto's father, okay. Giovanni, uh, nicknamed Nanny to his mates. Eight of 12 brothers. Can you imagine that? This is back in the days when oh no I couldn't he had a large family and cycling was a working class pursuit basically it was transport and he just turned out he was pretty good at riding bikes at the same time he also built city bikes um did nanny for um a company locally so he kind of understood a bit about frame building from the age of 15 but he raced and he raced for Batekia which is another bike brand uh and he was not really amazing uh he wasn't really Tim de Klerk level of or uh, Cone de Court level of domestic he finished famously, his most famous victory was actually the most famous loss you can have at the Giro, which is winning the Maglia Rosa, uh, sorry, the Maglia Nera, which is the black yeah. jersey, which is like the Lantern Rouge um, coming last, dead, dead last in GC. So he won that the last year that the organisers let that be a trophy because it was just apparently becoming ridiculous in 1951. You had riders sabotaging their bikes so puncturing their own wheels ripping off their <laughs> valves they would be hiding in barns they would be riding through tremendous injuries just to be seen to compete because you can't just stop right mm. you have to be riding otherwise you, you can't you have to kind of win the last place so they removed it giovanni pinarello great bit of pub quiz trivia last person to win the maglia nera so he found himself out of contract in 1952 and he took 100,000 lira they bought him out of his contract which is probably peanuts by today's standards and he set up a bike shop and he started selling Pinarello bikes in 1953 so that's kind of that's the beginning of, of the brand long before mm. Fausto was born obviously uh, so yeah 53 were the first Pinarellos and am I right so he sort of makes his first bikes in the 1950s but am I right to still assume that they were a bike brand that really came into their own in the 1990s. Because in my head, the Pinarello, the Pinarello I know is the Espada Hour record bike and the Paragina TT bike that was raced by the likes of Miguel Indurain and Biano Reese and a brand that really experimented with geometries and shapes in yeah. the 90s. Am I, is that, am I still on onto something there? Yeah, I'd say that's basically when the brand really just got its claws into the professional side of things. It did have early days, and this is a really weird coincidence, right? The first kind of major win by a Pinarello-sponsored rider was 1975 Giro d'Italia by Fausto Bertololi, right? 1981 yeah. was the next big watershed moment. It's a Giro Tour double by none other than Giovanni, Fausto's dad, Bataglin. So... Strange kind of uh, synergy there, I don't know. And in an interesting story with Bataglin, everyone back in the days then were riding double chain sets. 53, maybe even a 54, but 53, 44 was a common setup, right? Well, my knees are hurting just yeah, thinking of that. that's serious, right? So the, the, <laughs> the Giro that Giovanni won, Bataglin won, um, he pretty much uh, took the, the jersey, uh, the Magla Rosa, uh, on mm. the Tre Chimi de Lavarido, which is three very steep peaks. So it was a big ass day. And last moment, he asked Giovanni Pinarello if he and his mechanic would machine down his chain set and make it a triple. And so he he rode wow. the only rider in the race to ride with the 36 smallest ring. So 
Fausto said to me when we were chatting about this is like, yeah, he did the three peaks and we did the triple chain set that day. So it's quite, um, yeah, it's sort of a unique and it's and a bit of a precursor, I suppose, to it sounds minor now, the sorts of experimentations Pinarello were willing to do, which in the nicest possible way, we don't often associate with Italian brands. It's a very traditional country as Italy when it comes to its bikes. So yeah, those, the 80s, 70s, 80s, they were they were good years, but it really just kicked off when Pinarello took sponsorship of Bonesto in 1992. Yeah. As you say, with your top boy, he's your, he's your favourite rider, isn't he, I think, after Wiggins, would you say, Indurain? No, no, I mean, mine's Jan, it's Jan Ulrich, okay. a man who did ride on Pinarello's, but yeah. I do love Miguel Indurain because he was a man that helped advance bike technology, I feel. Yeah. Um, not least with the Espada Hour record bike, which... You, as you've told in your Fausto profile, was came at huge expense to Pinarello. Yeah, that's probably the world's heaviest, most expensive bike. So it weighed 9.25 kilos, which is quite a lot for a bike that cost 50,000 euros to make. And they only really made two of them. They had, they had to really get their mould right because it's a bike that doesn't really have any kind of adjustment to it. Because it's just one massive monocoque piece of carbon. It's a kind of Y-frame of sorts. There's no real discernible down tube to it. So it's all... Yeah, used. and there's no there's no seat tube, is there? That's no. the big thing. When you look at it, for, for the listener, um, we'll, we'll tweet, we'll provide links to the piece that James is talking about and the bike that James is talking about. But just so you get a sense of it, the bike has... It looks like you're making a gun sign with your hand. Yeah. yeah like you're a doing a trigger way. finger yeah. because there's no, so there's no seat tube. And there's a very swooping top tube into the cockpit. That's all one piece, and then it sort of goes down into the chain stays, and and there's that sort of nothing across the bottom of the bike. No, that's right. So it's almost yeah, it's kind of flying gun shaped. It's flying V, six fifty B front wheel, uh, seven hundred back, um, an incredible position again, um, but not really, not vastly, not you know, not like uh, Wiggins was probably holding like. Indurain wasn't the most aero on a bike, even though they did a lot of aero testing with him. It was a bit, it was a unit. He's an 80 kilo man, six foot two, and resting heart rate of 28 BPM. So a serious athlete, but arguably he was probably the least aerodynamic thing on that bike. Um, mm. And and for Pinarello, this was the bike, says Fausto, that kind of just kicked it off. He said this this woke me up for the next 30 years. So he didn't know anything about aerodynamics. The company didn't know anything about aerodynamics, but he was contacted by a guy from Florence University who was working with Lamborghini. And mm. the guy said, mate, you need to be thinking about aero stuff and wind tunnel testing for your bikes. We can make you fast. So he went, let's do it. So then they went to another um, contractor who was making parts for in carbon fiber for Bugatti cars, another Italian brand. So between... Pinarello, the Florence University Research Department, and uh, a chap from Bugatti, they made the Espada, gave it to Indurain, who just come off the back of the tour in 1992, just won the tour. There's probably a, a, a month turnaround during August. When mm. What happens in August in Italy? Everyone goes on holiday. Nothing. And you can't get in contact with anyone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Nothing happens. But Indurain was willing to sharpen the track. He was willing to put the hours in on the bike. And they got it dialed, and then uh, come September, he had taken the hour record at uh, just over fifty-three kilometers, which just was phenomenal. He he would take another hour record as well um, in his lifetime. 
And then Pinarello, they just love an hour record. So yeah. we, we all know that Wiggins got his in 2015. Um, didn't actually ride that much further than Indurain. 54 point, what was it? 54.5, something like that. So there's a kit about 1.3 kilometers more, which is sizable. But Fausto did point out, he said, I think that if we could have got Bradley on the Espada, he would have been so much faster. He's, he still thinks that's one of the fastest bikes that the world has ever seen. And one of the fastest bikes the world has ever seen that we'll never see the light of day again because it got banned by the UCI. So cheers. Incredible because it's a, it's a bike that's the same age as me. So <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. And, and, and as expensive as you. And as expensive as me because it didn't it cost, so it cost them 50,000 euros. Yeah. To, to make the mold and you could actually so you could only get two bikes out of the mold so they're twenty five thousand pound bikes well twenty five thousand pound frames probably about thirty thousand once you've added on the rest the itm tri bars the campagnolo disc wheels yeah so it's an expensive you know serious piece of kit and from your sort of piece on fausto i found that i found fausto to be a man who really likes to tell people that money doesn't matter yeah. when it comes to Pinarello bikes. Yeah. And and he did that most he also, you know he had he did that with the Espada time trial uh, the Espada bike with Indran. But then he really loves to brag about his partnership with Team Sky. Yeah. Partnership with Sky and his partnership with Benesto like the two possibly two of the biggest money making money deals in professional cycling in terms of one brand sticking as one sponsor with one very high-profile team. Mm. But it's interesting because I, I, am I, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that you're more likely to see a Pinarello these days in the Surrey Hills than the Italian Dolomite. And yeah, right, go that's on. Be, that, that's not only because... Uh, I, th- I think that's because of the incredible success that Pinarello has had with Team Sky and Ineos since 2010 when they came on board yep. to provide bikes. Um, and But this partnership with Team Sky and Ineos, has, has it brought the brand into like a new stratosphere? It feels like Pinarello were a popular bike brand, but because of what happened with Ineos and Wiggins in 2012, they just became, they took a new level, went onto a new plane. Yeah, no, totally. I really think that Pinarello could have faded into obscurity after the UCI band certain frame shapes because that was where they were finding a lot of success so mm. after frame when frames went back to being kind of tubes again but people had already moved out to taiwan for manufacturer pinarello didn't really move its manufacturer over to taiwan and into proper carbon fiber till 2005 Pereira, oscar Pereira won the tour de france uh, retrospectively because um floyd landis was disqualified but he won in 2006 on a bike that was a Pinarello, but it was made of magnesium alloy and carbon seat stays. Other people were riding carbon bikes. So, so yeah, they, they really should count themselves lucky that they managed to get a deal with Team Sky, but they've outslashed Ineos. They've obviously uh, treated them well and they've got a good partnership there. But I think from a kind of historical perspective, the watershed moment for, for the brand was uh, taking over at Bonesto in 92 because they suddenly just had this incredible run of success winning four back-to-back Tour de France's with Miguel Indurain, our records. Uh, Heroes. Yeah. And then some, and then magically ended up with team telecom as well. You know, bad boys, we look at them now, but at the time that was a serious team to be involved with the Ulrich, 
Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves. They both yeah. wanted for uh, for Pinarello. Um, took the took that bike brand from uh, from Eddie Merckx, who was sponsoring it before. Uh, something that that's a that's a story in itself. Something Fausto is very proud of is that changeover where he phoned Eddie and he said, "Is this okay? Can I take this brand off your hands?" Because Fausto previously feels like his company had been sort of slighted by what became GWIS Balan when uh, his previously successful team, Del Tongo. So a lot of team names here to get your head around, but like 1998, 1988, sorry, um, the Reynolds team with Pedro Delgado wins the Tour de France. Then Reynolds becomes Bonesto. Bonesto is Spanish. So Bonesto right. says, we want a Spanish bike brand. So Pinarello, see you later. So they get a brand that no longer exists called Raziza. So some people think that Indurain won five Tour de France's, Tour de France on a Pinarello bike. He didn't, he won four. The first bike was a Raziza, right? Mm. In 91. I'm with you. I'm still with you. You're still with me. Okay. So Pinarello needs a team. They get Del Tongo. Del Tongo does pretty well. They win the 1991 Giro with Franco Ciccioli, which is a great name. Mm. But 1992, drama, right? The team gets stolen by Bianchi. Not oh. stolen by Bianchi, but this little this sponsor called Energy have come along and they have made a deal with Bianchi. They've said to Del Tongo, we'll sponsor you, but we're going to bring our own bike brand. We're going to bring Bianchi. So Del Tongo go, yeah, cool. Call the management dude. So suddenly Pinarello finds itself high and dry. They've Their team has got a new sponsor and that sponsor's bought a bike brand. So Pinarello gets the checkbook out, goes to Bonesto, and Fausto signs off this incredible deal that he wouldn't say how much it was for, only to say that it should have taken them four years to pay for the team to pay it back. And it was only the fact that Miguel was so good that it kind of paid Pinarello back and then some within wow. the first year. And he said, you know, it saves some intimated it saves some fairly serious arguments between him and his dad. This twenty nine year old getting the family uh, opening the family coffers and striking this mega deal uh, with Vanesto in the nineties, uh, but it really, yeah. But it was pitter, it's that that deal he struck with Vanesto is practically pittance compared to what he pays to be with Sky slash Ineos now. Doesn't he say it's about twenty three times more expensive? Yeah, so, to Sky. Goodness, goodness, no. And he and the way he worked that out as well. He he worked it out uh, with inflation, <laughs> and <he> could, <laughs> it wasn't just like oh, it's twenty three times more that amount. He did a conversion. He worked out the inflate like the conversion from Lira. He got his technical calculator. He literally out. had his technical calculator <laughs> out. So that's that's serious. And what little that we know of the overall pack, the overall budget for a team like Ineos was around thirty two million, I think. At the last kind of count, who knows how much isn't disclosed. So yeah. you can bet your bottom dollar that there are several million and then some because of all the bikes going into that team and that deal, you know, they don't do it. Did st- he tell you how many bikes he has to give Ineos a year? So those guys will get more or less, depending on who you are, you get six. So you get three road bikes. So you get your number one bike, your number two bike, that's on top of the team car. You get your three bike, yep. which is your home bike for training. Then you yeah. get two time trial bikes. Again, your number one bike, your number two bike on the team car. Then you get a Paris-Roubaix bike. So in the Pinarello's case, uh, what are they doing? The K10. The K10S. Yeah, so your, your soft end, hardier, longer wheelbase jobby. And then you also get 
Pinarello's X light, so their kind of ultralight version of the Dogma, which is uh, the one that Chris Froome would normally be riding. You know, he's not going to be having that Israel, is he? But um, yeah, that's, no. that's what you'd see them the guys go into the mountain stages with. So six bikes, whereas back in the nineties, two thousands, the teams would get four. Most riders would get four bikes. Uh, unless you were in Durain, he'd get a few more because it was a bit special. Or apparently Maurizio Fondriest, a Pinarello-sponsored rider, was probably had the most bikes because he was an incredibly fussy. Pino, Fausto said, oh, you know, he's one of my friends. I love, I love the guy, but he was so fussy about his position. And he'd say, this bike is a millimetre too short. And I'd just say, Maurizio, how can you know that? And he'd just say, because I do. Make me, <laughs> make me, and they, but, you know... They were making steel bikes. It's a bit easier to fabricate a steel bike than it is a whole carbon thing. I mean, I find the partnership that Pinarello has with Sky and Slash Ineos to be quite fascinating because we're led to believe that Sky and Slash Ineos are a very fastidious, fastidious team yep. when it comes to their technology and what they race on. Mm-hmm. But Pinarello are one of the only brands that basically has one bike. So if you look at Trek or Specialized or Cannondale or Canyon, all of these brands manufacture three separate road frames. They'll have a climbing lightweight bike. They'll have an aerodynamic, fast, slightly heavier frame. And then they'll have that longer wheelbase geometry frame set endurance bike. Yeah. And there'll be three different bikes. You'll you'll Mm -hmm. have Tarmac, Venge, Roubaix. But Pinarello has the Dogma. And while it does have the K10S, as you mentioned, which has that integrated suspension, slightly longer wheelbase, and while it does have the X-Lite, which is a bike manufactured with lighter carbon, they are all basically the same frame, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Why Why is that? And why do Team Sky use a bike brand that have one bike for them to choose? Well, do you know why? I mean, initially Team Sky used whatever bikes would give them the most money to sponsor them, and that was probably Pinarello. Then after that, apparently and they would say this but i kind of believe them because they've been together for so long the guys really do rate the bikes so pinarello forged themselves a good reputation with the dogma um and they would just say to you well we only need one bike our bike does all the things it needs to do it's super stiff and i would vouch for that a dogma f12 is a really stiff bike so can... oh, i haven't read the f12 but having read the f10 i, I yeah. can also confirm that that is the case yeah mega stiff they got the whole asymmetric frame thing where one side is built different to the other in order to cope with the fact that you put more stress through the drivetrain side of a bike so like twists doesn't twist uniformly under load so yeah. it's really yes yeah, super stiff bike incredible descender um it's also yeah stiff enough to sprint on uh and it is aerodynamically tuned it might look a bit wacky but it does see cfd uh, it does see a wind tunnel those tube shapes are more or less shaped like that for a reason although again fausto did kind of go well i've always said i just want my bikes to look different that's one of the design briefs so it is they would say why why do we need why do we need three bikes this bike does it all and the other th- and one of the points of conjecture might be but your bike is a bit heavy, guys, and a Pinarello Dogma is a touch heavier than an S-Works Tarmac Cannondale Super 6. But again, apparently, according to Pinarello, that is a deliberate choice. They don't want a lighter frame. They don't see it as safe. They see making weight savings elsewhere. Um, and so an 850-gram frame to them is po- t- perfectly acceptable. 
and the X-Lite frames are 80, 100 grams less than that. So you're still not looking at a Trek Imondo or a Cervelo uh, R5 territory of lightness, but it's, mm. it's, it's pretty light. And I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, they were riding the X-Lites and I think both G's X-Lite and Froome's, famous when Froome's running up, uh, running Von up. Two. Yeah, Von 2. The aftermath of that crash left the seat stays snapped again on the X-Lite that he was right. riding. And a lot of people pointed to that as like, yeah, basically they're skimping on carbon fiber there to make it make the weight and it's not robust enough. And I'm not saying that's true. But it does kind of play into the idea that let's make a strong bike, not a light bike. And you do see that as a failure point. That's not just Pinarello, to be fair. Factor had that as a problem. They've changed their layups. You do see that as a failure point in a crash because seat stays are so skinny. It's not bad when you're riding it. That's fine. They're not going to break. But in a crash, that is a, a susceptible area of breakage. And that's not good. You can't get back on a bike that's broken like that. No. If you're pro. And so, I mean, they're all just circling back around to Eddie Merckx, who used to favour a strong bike over a light bike every time. Yeah, exactly. And as the greatest rider of all time, he must know his stuff. He must know his stuff. And he just reminded me, another little interesting factoid from uh, from Fausto was in in talking about other... Because a lot of people that start a bike brand off the back of their names are pro. Uh, Bataglin was one, Eddie Merckx. Yeah. Uh, Mario Fondriest, Mario Cipollini, Mario Cipollini, yeah, um, and Merck's Chris Bo- Chris Borben, Chris Bo- yeah, Chris Borben, what a successful brand that is. Uh, uh, but Merck said that over his career and his ownership of Merck's bicycles, he reckons that Axel Merck's, which is his son who raced, made more money than he ever did. Can you imagine that? that the most successful amazing. cyclist in the world. <laughs> and his son, who I can't even name a race or a stage that Axel won. I'm not saying he's not. It was. It was a talented. I mean, player. he won a single stage of the Tour de France. Really? Fair, well done, Axel. Chapeau. But I think Eddie Merckx has probably won more stages of the Tour de France on one day. You put, yeah. He, ex, ex, standing on life. one leg. And and my last question about sort of Pinarello, James, and their relationship with Sky and Ineos, more specifically, is the majority of the World Tour peloton has switched to disc brakes. But the biggest exception of the lot is Team Ineos, who are exclusively on rim brakes still. Why is that? Did Pinarello tell you why? Uh, yeah, it, I asked because to me it just seems bonkers. It's so weird. And also, Pinarello make a very, very good F12 disc bike, and there's not a lot in it weight-wise. But Fausto just said the team don't want discs. They don't see discs as uh, disc bikes as being responsive Um as as responsive as rim brake bikes and his take on it is that it's the wheels so as much as you can make the bike light you can make all the other parts light where your wheels are going to be you know your wheel so we saw sky racing on lightweight wheels last year as in lightweight yeah we did at the tour yeah at the tour and and lightweight will make you a set of wheels that is a kilo whereas and you can't get close to that in rim brakes, uh, sorry, in disc brakes. So that's that's his reason. De facto, disc brake wheels are heavier. Teams want the lightest stuff, but they also want the lightest stuff in the right places. So a rim brake bike accelerates better and it corners better as well. And it also, it can, some people think it can brake better because you don't have one force being applied to one half of the wheel. 
And you can sometimes notice that on a flexier fork on this bike by pulling to one side, which, you know, as we discussed before, if you're nailing a bend, uh, like a hairpin at sort of 50k an hour, mm. then you really don't want your bike, like if you're braking going into that, you don't want to be veering off. You want those braking forces to be even. So yeah, that was that was um, his take on it. And it seems kind of legit because they have the option and the team has chosen that. And other brands, the skeptic in you will say, the other teams are riding disc brakes because the brands are telling them they have to and they want to shift those bikes. But, you know, is what it is. And interestingly, Pinarello says it sells more disc bikes than it does rim brake bikes. Go figure. Go figure. That's a great way to end the episode. So thanks everyone for joining us for episode six of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Before we go, we just want to say a congratulations to Alberto Contador and Emma Pooley. Congratulations. On taking the taking the men's and women's Everesting records respectively and commiserations to Phil Guyman our guest from the last episode as his job of taking that record back has just been made a little bit harder. Uh, Join us again in two weeks' time. Again, do leave us a review on Apple. Follow us and subscribe where you can and where you can find all your good uh, podcast episodes. And for now, James, I'll talk to you later.